Scripture reading is from Proverbs chapter 8, Proverbs 8 verses 22 to 31. And the uh, relevance of this to the, uh, the text and the sermon has to do with the fact that uh, the, it's talking about God's wisdom and the relationship between wisdom and God, but uh, we understand that the wisdom of God is the Lord Jesus Christ, the wisdom later made flesh. And uh, so this is a verse that is often used, a section of the scripture that is often used to uh, fill out our understanding of the doctrine of the Trinity, from verse 22 to 31. The Lord possessed me at the beginning of his way, before his works of old. From everlasting I was established, from the beginning, from the earliest times of the earth. When there were no depths, I was brought forth, when there were no springs abounding with water. Before the mountains were settled, before the hills I was brought forth. While he had not yet made the earth and the fields, nor the first dust of the world, when he established the heavens, I was there. When he inscribed a circle on the face of the deep. When he made firm the skies above. When the springs of the deep became fixed. When he set for the sea its boundary so that the water should not transgress his command. When he marked out the foundations of the earth, then I was beside him as a master workman. And I was daily his delight, rejoicing always before him. Rejoicing in the world, his earth, and having my delight in the sons of men. Would you then turn, please, to John chapter 5. The whole book of John has uh, a lot of teaching regarding uh, the doctrine of the Trinity. And so too with this fifth chapter, John 5. And I'll read verses 26 to 32, sorry, 25 to 32, and the text for the sermon is verses 25 to 29. John 5 from verse 25. Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and now is when the dead shall hear the voice of the Son of God, and those who hear shall live. For just as the Father has life in himself, even so he gave to the Son also to have life in himself. And he gave him authority to execute judgment because he is the Son of Man. Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming in which all who are in the tomb shall hear his voice and shall come forth. Those who did the good deeds to a resurrection of life those who committed the evil deeds to a resurrection of judgment. I can do nothing on my own initiative. As I hear, I judge. And my judgment is just, because I do not seek my own will, but the will of him who sent me. If I alone bear witness of myself, my testimony is not true. There is another who bears witness of me, and I know that the testimony which he bears of me is true. And uh, you might also have noticed some uh, connection there in these words with the Athanasian Creed. Uh, much of the language in that 
passage is taken up in the Athanasian Creed, uh, not only regarding the Father and the Son and their relationship, but also in terms of the final judgment. Uh, very much uses that language from uh, this text. But uh, we read now, not uh, this time from the Athanasian Creed, but from the Westminster Confession, chapter 2, article 3, once again, another sermon, and the uh, last of these sermons that I'm planning on the doctrine of the Trinity. You'll find a copy of that article inside the uh, bulletin. In the unity of the Godhead, there be three persons of one substance, power, and eternity. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Ghost. The Father is of none, neither begotten nor proceeding. The Son is eternally begotten of the Father, the Holy Ghost eternally proceeding from the Father and the Son. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we have been uh, reminded in what we were singing a few moments ago that living according to your word brings your blessing, a gracious reward to your people. Lord, as Jacob desired the covenant blessing so much that he clung to the angel of the Lord for much of the night, so would you cause us to cling to you through the Lord Jesus Christ and in connection with that, Father, that we may pay close attention to your covenant word where we learn about the Lord Jesus Christ and how we know, can know you through him. We pray this in his name. Amen. Covenant people of God, last week we considered a very difficult doctrine, the eternal procession of the Holy Spirit from the Father and the Son. And uh, as I think I remarked then, it's uh, probably in terms of uh, theology and theological writings. If you read systematic theology books, for example, uh, it probably doesn't get too much more difficult than that as far as that subject is concerned. A few, a few people after last week, uh, a couple of people made uh, what I think is a rather wise comment. They said, uh, we accept it, but we don't understand it. And the, the truth of the matter is we're all in that same boat. In fact, uh, you could go to the most learned theologians in history and I'm sure they would be in exactly the same position. That They would say, we're trying to do justice to the way the scripture speaks, but we don't really comprehend it. It's so far beyond us. So, as I say, we don't comprehend all the details. All analogies break down. There is nothing in our experience at all that can give us a, an accurate analogy of these truths. But nevertheless, we have certain teachings, certain words and phrases in the scripture, words like Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And those words are given to us for us to, to understand at least to some degree what is meant by them. And they do mean something. They mean something about the three persons of the Trinity and how they relate with each other 
as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And this is what we wrestle with. And since we wrestled with what that means concerning the Holy Spirit in relation to the Father and the Son last time, it is important that we do not neglect the Son in that relationship to the Father. And that's what we look at this time. Now, when we spoke of the Holy Spirit last time, we looked at the word proceeded, that the Holy Spirit eternally goes forth or proceeds from the Father and the Son. And this is both biblical language, we looked at a text that used that word proceeded last time, but it's also theological language, as you might have noticed in our reading of some of the creeds and confessions, speaking of the Spirit proceeding. So it is biblical language, but the Bible never speaks of the Son proceeding from the Father. That kind of language is not used at all in the Scripture. And what the uh, theologians from the uh, early times of the Nicene and Athanasian creeds, the way that they have spoken it is, uh, put it is this, that they put it in these terms, to say that the Spirit proceeds, but the Son eternally is generated or begotten by the Father, or to say it this way, the Father eternally generates or begets the Son. And that's more language that we don't really comprehend. But we do see it reflected in the scripture, and we see it reflected also, uh, this teaching reflected in our text, which we look at under two headings. First of all, the eternal generation of the Son of God, and secondly, the mission of the Son of Man. Eternal generation and the mission of God the Son. In the first place, then, one of the key statements from this passage concerning the doctrine of the Trinity is found in verse 26, where it says that the Father has life in himself. Uh, in other words, the Father is the fountain of life, as uh, Psalm 36 verse 9 says. All life, physical life, spiritual life, and eternal life, all life is ultimately from him as its source. And there is no one and nothing who has ever given life to him. It all comes from him. He has that life uh, in himself, we are told. And uh, sometimes that's put this way, to say that God is self-existent. In other words, he's not dependent on something or someone else to get his life. He has all life in himself. He has all existence in himself. So he doesn't get it from anybody else. And this is actually an answer to a question that you sometimes hear from non-Christians. I've heard it a number of times. Sometimes you also get it from children. I'd rather have it from children than I would from a non-Christian because children are usually asking the honest question. Non-Christians are often trying to trip you with this question. And the question is, who created God? It's sometimes said quite defiantly. Who created God then? Who's God's father? This question I've heard a few times. And non-Christians often struggle with that because their assumption is that everything and everyone must have a cause. And every one of those causes has a cause behind it and so on and so on back into infinity. 
But this is one of the reasons, uh, this, uh, the answer to this question is that there is, God has no father, there is no cause, he's self-existent. And this is one of the reasons why the Father is called the Father and why he's called the Father in eternity. Because he is not a son and he has never been a son. He is always a father and no one therefore has ever given him life or existence. On the contrary, as I said, he is the one who gives life to others rather than receiving it. And that's what the Athanasian Creed was referring to when it said that the Father is made of none, neither created nor begotten. No one created the Father, no one created God, no one had the Father as a child. He has always been the Father. And it's also true to say that uh, the Father is not proceeding. The Spirit proceeds but the Father does not. But verse 26 does not stop there. It adds that the Father gave to the Son to have life in himself. And we've already seen that that language, life in himself, means self-existence, independent of creatures or, or other creators or anything of that kind. Moreover, the words even so here, those words mean in like manner. In other words, the Son is eternally like the Father in his divine self-existence. Let me put that another way, a simpler way, to say that the Son is fully God, just as the Father is fully God, not a creature, not created. Here too we are faced with an, an infinite, infinitely deep truth that we can't comprehend but we just have to accept. I don't understand it but I accept it. So uh, don't try to get your head around this and don't worry if you don't get your head around it. I certainly can't. I can't understand in any detail what this means. Nevertheless, it is a truth that is implied in this text. I would argue that it's not so much stated in this text. It is implied by it. It is implied by the very use of the word son. And I'll explain why in just a moment. But it is also a truth that we confessed, and we have confessed it already this afternoon, that the father eternally generates or begets the son, and that he's also... Uh, eternally communicating the entire divine essence to him, everything that it means to be God. Now, as I said, I don't understand that, but I believe we can benefit not so much from an analogy that teaches us what this means, but we can benefit, benefit from an analogy as to what it does not mean. We can benefit, it helps us, to see the contrast between this generation or begetting and a human father-son relationship. Human fathers, biblically speaking, are described as begetting or generating their sons. Mothers in the Bible are described as bearing or giving birth to their sons. And sons or children are described as being begotten and born. 
And you see, that is what it means to be a father. That's what the word really means, to be a begetter. And it is what it means for a mother to be a mother. And it's what it means for a son to be a son, as the scripture understands that. But of course, human fathers beget their sons and their sons are begotten at a particular point in time. Moreover, when a father has a son, his son is a separate human being, separate from his father. And though it is true that the father passes on certain genes to his son, uh, maybe it might be uh, hair colour or eye colour, it might be physical strength, it might be mental strength, uh, those kind of uh, abilities. It might even be some tendency to uh, have a certain genetic uh, uh, a disease that's passed on by genes. So fathers can pass on certain things to their sons, but they don't pass on everything. They don't pass on everything of who they are. And so the father and son, they, the son is not all that the father is. Though he may share some of his father's attributes, he does not share fully. Moreover, both father and son, during all of this, they experience change as human beings in this father-son relationship. However, what we are talking about with the first and the second person of the Trinity is not like that, not exactly like that at all. The relationship between the Father and the Son is eternal and unchanging. In eternity, the Father is always generating the Son. He's always begetting him. And in eternity, the Son is always being begotten, always being generated. And that is why the Lord Jesus is called the Son, the Son of God. The Father is always communicating the entire divine essence to the Son so that he is always fully God like the Father. And the two, uh, with the Holy Spirit, are always in a relationship of perfect unity within the Godhead, which again is unlike the situation with a human father and son. All of this, as I've mentioned, is taken up in our creeds and confessions, as we saw with the Holy Spirit. Nicene Creed, the Lord Jesus is begotten, not made, being of one substance, or we could also say divine essence, with the Father. The Athanasian Creed, the Father is made of none, neither created nor begotten. The Son is of the Father alone, not made or created, but begotten or we could say generated. Belgian Confession, Article 10. Jesus Christ, according to his divine nature, is the only begotten Son of God, begotten from eternity, not made, not created, but co-essential and co-eternal with the Father. And the Westminster Confession, as we've read, the Son is eternally begotten of the Father. Now again we ask, as we ask with the teaching on the Holy Spirit, why do the creeds and confessions make such a big thing of this? Well, for one thing, because it is essential to our salvation. And did you notice, as we read the Athanasian Creed, how a number of times it said, if you don't believe this, then you will not be saved. They don't mean that we have to understand all the details. But if you hold to the, the errors or the heresies on the doctrine of the Trinity that go in very different directions than this, 
then you don't know God. Why will the creeds and confessions make a big thing of this? Because these are truths that are part of our knowledge of the living God. Because that is who he is and what he is like. And it is tied up intricately with our salvation. It is essential for our salvation in this way that the Messiah had to be fully divine. And he is. He had to be full of life. As full of life as God is full of life. And he was and is and will be in order to save us. And this is the very reason why John points to these things in his gospel. Because back in verse 18 in that same chapter, as Jesus was teaching and uh, performing signs and miracles in front of the crowds, many of the Jews reacted and said that they wanted to kill him actually because he was making himself equal to God, to the Father. And how did he do that? by saying that God was his own father. By talking about that eternal father-son relationship, Jesus uh, occasioned that reaction from many of the Jews that they wanted to kill him for blasphemy. They weren't worried that he was a son in other sense. They were worried that he was a son or claiming to be a son in this particular way this eternal relationship and unique relationship with God the Father. And Jesus' answer to that is to say, the Father gave me, just like himself, to be self-existent and full of life. That's not the whole of his answer, but that's certainly a part of it. And uh, also then the creeds and confessions say this because the Bible speaks this way both directly at times and also implicitly at other times. The Bible calls the Father the Father and the Son the Son and the Spirit the Spirit and those words are not empty, they mean something. And they don't mean something by way of a human type relationship but by way of an eternal relationship, an unchanging relationship. Scripture also uses terms like only begotten Son of God, uh, uniquely begotten Son of God, not begotten the way that humans are, but uniquely begotten. Sure, the virgin birth was unique, but this is talking about something more, an eternal begetting and begottenness. And there is no real analogy to that in human existence. Uh, it's also why the scripture says, it speaks about the Son coming forth out of the Father. John 16 verse 28. And why the Bible speaks constantly about Father, Son and Holy Spirit being equal in divinity. Well, so far we've been talking about an eternal relationship between Father and Son. But there is another important truth taught in this text. And that is that the only begotten Son of God who had agreed from eternity to take on a human nature and obey his Father took up his messianic office on this earth at a certain point in time. Our second and final point, the mission of the Son of Man. And the evidence that the text is speaking of this mission is seen in the language the Son of Man, verse 27, moreover, the Son of Man coming at a certain hour. Coming at his hour, verses 25 and 28. And this is 
picking up the language of Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 and 14, which is a prophecy of the coming of the Messiah, who when he came would be given by God all dominion and all glory and an everlasting kingdom. And John now uses the past tense to show that this is what it is exactly what has happened. It has come to pass, Daniel's prophecy, because now the father, past tense, gave to the son to have life, verse 26, and gave him authority to execute judgment because he is the son of man, the son of man, the Messiah about whom Daniel prophesied. And this is speaking about things that have happened and also things that will happen in time, in history. And it's not directly speaking about the eternal relationships within the Trinity. However, there is a connection between the eternal relationship and the messianic work. Remember, the Messiah is both God and man. That was also very much in the Athanasian Creed. And because he is the Messiah, both God and man, he can be sent and he can be given things and he can operate in history. But how can the Messiah be given the fullness of life like God? Because he is God. Because as God, the eternal second person, he always has life in himself from the Father. The work of the God-man in time is fitted to who he is as the Son of God in eternity. And I said before that illustrations are always so dangerous, especially when it comes to the question of the Trinity. But to give a, a poor illustration of this perhaps, but uh, might give you some idea of what is meant by these things. Uh, when I was in high school, I took part in a school play. And part of that play involved me uh, playing the part of a man who was angry with another man. And uh, during the performance of that play, I uh, grabbed the other boy who was pretending to be a man. I grabbed the other boy and dragged him, I grabbed him by the scruff of the neck and dragged him across the table. I was able to do that because I was bigger than he was and that uh, made it possible. And the point I'm making that I was already bigger in real life, so to speak, and so I could bring that into the role that I was playing and the work that was required in, that, in that, uh, that, that role. So I'm making the point here that the Lord Jesus Christ was always in eternity, full of life from the Father. And therefore it could be given to the Messiah, the God-man, to have that fullness of life and to teach that life and pass on that life to others, to share it with others. Similarly, because the Lord Jesus was always fully God, eternally generated and begotten or begotten of the Father, always therefore full of divine authority and always full of divine justice, because of that, he could be given all authority as the Messiah in his messianic role at a certain point in time. Verse 27. Think also of the Great Commission. At the completion of Jesus' mission on earth, Jesus says to the disciples, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Matthew 28, verse 18. 
But the eternal second person of the Trinity always had all authority. With that infinite divine authority, the Messiah calls the dead out of their tombs, according to verses 25, 28 and 29. And this is not talking about the dead uh, coming out of their tombs and entering Jerusalem as in Matthew 27 verse 53. This is talking about the final judgment. More than that, the Lord Jesus has not only given authority to call that judgment, to call the dead out of their tombs, he is given authority as Messiah to execute that judgment. To give life to those who hear his voice so that they will come forth to resurrection of life. Verse 29. Talking about those whose good deeds will demonstrate that they had a living relationship with the Lord Jesus during their life on earth and therefore they received spiritual life from the one who was full of life. But the one who also has the authority to call and to execute a resurrection of judgment. Hell for those whose evil deeds demonstrate that they stop their ears to his voice and did not receive life from him. Now remember, Jesus is saying these things to answer and to warn those Jews who objected to his claim of equality with the Father. Verse 18. He claims that it is precisely because of that equality with his Father that he has that fullness of life and that fullness of power and authority both to save and also to judge and condemn to rule, to put it in Daniel's terms, with all dominion, power and glory. The weak denials of rebels, those who, who think these things are not true, the weak denials of rebels, they may think that they have got themselves out of earshot of the voice of the great king. But really, they're just uh, kidding themselves. They're, they're stopping their own ears and then saying, well, I, I can't hear any voice. Therefore, he does not exist. Therefore, what the Bible says is not true because I can't hear his voice calling me. They kid themselves about that for a time, but only for a time because they are only delaying the time when they will surely hear his voice, when they will hear it calling them out of their tombs, out of their graves. And they will hear that voice as the voice of judgment in a demonstration of that same power and glory. It is no wonder that the writer of Hebrews says, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. For this is the voice of the Son of Man, who is also the Son of God, with all divine authority, power, glory, dominion and life. Amen. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we admit that we understand so little of your triune nature. It is a great mystery to us and in some ways the greatest mystery. And yet, Father, we pray that this would not deter us from seeking to learn as much as we can and that having learned those things, we may use them that we may use them to enhance our praises for you, for who you are, 
that we may do that in a deeper way. And also for increasing our thanks for the way in which you have brought that triune nature into our very salvation. We thank you and praise you for this in Jesus' name. Amen. We sing of the reign of the Lord Jesus Christ, his royal victory over his enemies, as well that he is the high priest of our salvation. Psalm 221. We'll stand to sing, and would you please remain standing after for the blessing and doxology. After the blessing is our doxology, we sing from the Psalter Hymnal 301, stanzas 1 and 4. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen. <laughs> 